you have to t- kind of train them how to use that when you're when you're going down a trail, I would assume, or at least kind of give them a rundown to say like, hey, make sure that you're stiffen up on your leg when you're when you're going downhill. Yeah, well, again, you have no option, and your your good foot's in it, so. It's almost a passive activity. You really have no say. I, I have to stress, when you're in one of these litters, you lose total control. You're just fastened in, and you're relying upon the skill of the rescuers. It can be a really scary thing. Got it. You'll slide, but that harness will stop you from putting pressure on your bad leg. Got it. Now, have you ever gotten a ride in one of these things? Do they do that during training? Yeah, we do. We try to get as many people into the litters as possible. You need empathy because it will change the way you handle the litter. Again, it's terrifying, especially if you're going down a rocky, steep section of trail, which basically covers the whites. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, every part of the whites. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to episode four of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. This week, we are stepping away from our normal discussion to provide an overview on search and rescue. It's time to do a deep dive to learn all about the great men and women of the search and rescue organizations of New Hampshire. I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right, Stomp. So this is your night. We're doing a full episode highlighting all of these stakeholders in the SAR universe within New Hampshire. So are you excited? Absolutely. It's uh, actually bigger than most people realize. Yeah, it certainly is. I was kind of going through some of your notes here, and it's amazing how many different organizations there are scattered throughout New Hampshire that that are basically set up to, to cover rescues and get people out of trouble. The info we're going over tonight is part of a set of presentations given at various locations throughout the year. We'll cover what teams are involved, specialized teams and some equipment that we use on rescues, things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, there's a couple of segments here of of these notes that we want to go through to give the listeners a really good understanding of how the support structure is set up. So I think the first area that we want to cover is from a, a law enforcement and governing agency responsibility for, for overseeing this infrastructure, there's, there's, it sounds like three primary organizations, Tom? Well, three first responders, but uh, depending on the location of the incident, you have jurisdiction that gets divided. Uh, Fish and Game has sole jurisdiction for all woodlands and uh, waterway incidents. I think of Fish and Game in terms of like they're in charge of everything, but you're saying like they don't, they don't have responsibility for for the entirety of, of the state when it comes to search and rescue? So in terms of search and rescue responsibilities, New Hampshire Fishing Game has the sole jurisdiction for searches and rescues exclusively in woodlands and waterways. And the U.S. Forest Service has jurisdiction in those areas only during the winter months in the Cutler River drainage, which is the eastern side of Mount Washington. Local fire departments do not have jurisdiction in those areas, but they may be called upon by Fish and Game to participate in searches and rescues as needed. They generally will only stay superficially on the outside or the periphery of the wilderness and not delve deeper in. That's where the volunteer teams and Fish and Game come into play. And do you find that the local fire departments, is it their preference to to hand these over to fishing game whenever they can, or are there some some local fire departments that are sort of more comfortable about going deeper into the wilderness if they need to? I don't really have a, an idea about that. They're always willing to go, but again, they're only participating 
in the shallower missions. You know, here in Welch Dickey, for instance, Waterville Valley and uh, Campton Thornton will participate, but we're talking about a, a mission that's maybe a mile in and uh, gentler terrain. Got it, got it. And then, so these three organizations are the ones that are responsible when when a rescue is needed or search is needed they're the ones that are going to reach out to the volunteer organizations that that help in these these cases so well fishing game or the u.s forest service those are the two primaries and again u.s forest service is only for that little location on the eastern side of washington during the winter months they have the sole jurisdiction for searches and rescues there got it and there's four volunteer rescue teams throughout the state of new hampshire that are set up for um, supporting these organizations so you're part of the the PEMI search and rescue organization but do you want to break down the the four organizations that are responsible for this sure yeah there are four teams but um, we generally consider amc as part of that click as well so it's either four or five so you have androscoggin valley search and rescue team you have lakes region search and rescue you have pemi search and rescue which you mentioned upper valley wilderness response team and then of course the volunteers of the amc got it and then there's some overlapping geography here so there's not a hard line on what what team supports what particular area if uh, I'm assuming you guys kind of rely on each other to to step in if you need need more support. Oh, sure. There's mutual aid quite often, but the teams are generally allocated to specific regions. Okay, and the um, the so Andrew Scoggin they they tend to be more along the presidentials, and then Pemi tends to be more in the Franconia area. And, and can you talk a little bit about Upper and, and Lakes region where they cover? Sure. Yeah. I mean, just to take a. a step back the the state is divided into districts with district one being the northern part of the state district two being that eastern side of mount washington that avsark covers and uh, district three grafton county where pemi covers upper valley covers the connecticut river valley in the hanover area mount cardigan they will journey south to cover Monadnock. And then you have Lakes Region, which covers essentially the Lakes Region and the Southern White Mountains. And they're based out of Laconia. Okay. And that's the newest organization, right? Because I remember, I think they formed like probably a few years ago, right? Right. Yeah. I think it's probably been about two or three years. Time flies. What, do you do you know what, what was the reason for, for them setting up the Lakes Region? I believe there was just a paucity of help and assistance for the rescue calls that uh, come in throughout the lakes region. So in that area, they would rely on the local EMT and fire services, which yeah, I got to be honest with you, the lakes region is very, very busy. It's, it's fairly populous down there. So they have their hands full to begin with. So there was a, a huge need for volunteer search and rescue. Yeah. And that, that was one of the reasons why I asked about the, the fire departments and what their level of comfort is, because in that lakes region, you know, you, in the Belknaps in particular, you know, usually those rescues are not that deep in, but I would assume that with the volume of people going up on like Mount Major and getting in trouble, it, it makes a lot of sense to have a lakes region rescue team to, to be available. And then also like that Southern part, like in Tamworth and, and Mount Shakura and that whole area in the sandwich range it, it's tough for you guys in the PEMI to get over there quickly oh yeah absolutely I mean it's an hour that's why we t- tend to limit membership from that area to PEMI itself if it's you know if it's 
beyond 50 miles or an hour, then we suggest today that people sign up for Lakes Region because it's just too far. Got it. All right. So the the again, the four volunteer teams, um, you know, PEMI, Upper Valley, Androscoggin and Lakes Region, and then you said the AMC. You guys sort of, you view the AMC as a as a as a fifth team. They have a historic history with New Hampshire fishing game. Their hut system is scattered throughout the region. The volunteers that work for the AMC are usually the first to hear about incidents that may be happening in the area, and oftentimes the volunteers are actually the first people to respond and arrive to a victim. Yeah, I've seen that in a number of news articles. Like you'll hear like somebody went missing or there was a rescue. And a lot of times it's the, the crew members that are stationed at the huts that will, will go out and do a, I guess you call them a hasty search. And sometimes they'll they'll pick pick people up and get them back to the hut and, mm-hmm. and um, do a lot of saves before you guys even need to be activated, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, who knows how many we haven't seen because of their intervention. This makes sense. So you've got the three agencies, primarily fishing game, that's overseeing all of this apparatus. You've got the the four volunteer teams plus the AMC. So in addition to those volunteer teams, Stomp, there is uh, a number of other teams that are more specialized than just the general search and rescue that um, that that the PEMI team would do or the, the other four teams that you talked about. So can you talk about the, the specialized teams? Yes, there are four. Mountain Rescue Service, Mount Washington Volunteer Ski Patrol, New England K-9 SAR, and the White Mountain Swift Water Rescue Team. Mountain Rescue Service is generally called for vertical and alpine winter searches, rescues, and recoveries. We'll work with them on occasion at Cannon Cliff, for instance, where there's a need to extract a victim on the cliffs. These people are generally guides. A lot of them have climbed Everest. Great people, very, very skilled and obviously specialized. There's Mount Washington Volunteer Ski Patrol. They cover Tuckerman's Ravine and Huntington Ravine during the winter months. All right. So then it sounds like in the winter months, because Tuckerman is so busy, You've got the Forest Service and then this volunteer ski patrol that's just keeping an eye on that that particular area just because it's sort of a hot spot with, with the skiing activity that goes on in the avalanche risk. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Forest Service is up there daily. They're up there as well, the volunteer skiers. Um, looking for any issues, they can respond to avalanches, injuries. They work in conjunction with Forest Service. Got it. And then um, there's a couple of other specialized volunteer teams here. You, so you said the the canine unit as well? New England canine will be called out for searches in particular. They've unfortunately been really busy the last week or two with different missing persons cases. They are also delving into the use of drones for post-incident forensics, uh, such as climbing accidents where they We'll just scan the side of a cliff and look for detail about what may have happened. And then finally, there's White Mountain Swift Water Rescue. They just deal with a lot of the high water incidents, you know, rafts, a lot of technical rope rigging to get to patients that may be stuck on the other side of a high water region. Got it. Now, I know you have said like through your volunteer activities, you've worked closely with Mountain Rescue Services just because of you know, the climbing incidents that happen are in and around Cannon, but ha- have you done any work with the canine or the, the Swift Water rescue teams? Um, Swift Water, no, 
but New England canine, yes, on multiple occasions. I've, I've seen them for larger searches. I can mention the, the Chris Staff search. Oh, yeah. And the Dartmouth student. So they're, they're actually quite busy. Very skilled crew, and the dogs dogs are amazing. And the dogs, they don't have any hesitancy of letting the dogs loose in the, in the wilderness and in mountains and in, in those areas? They make a great effort at training the dogs and exposing the dogs to various situations and uh, circumstances. In our statewide training that happens every May, they'll actually bring the dogs into the Black Hawk just so that they get used to the, the, the sensation and the noise and everything else. And uh, boy, that's something to see. It's it's really cool. Some of these dogs are very timid initially, and then they get right into the Blackhawk. So yeah, these dogs are pretty fearless, and uh, they're exposed to a lot. You had mentioned the, the dogs getting into the helicopters. So that is kind of the last component of the, the search and rescue infrastructure in the state is the, the medevac. Uh, infrastructure. So there's a number of different organizations that are involved in the, the helicopter um, search and rescue. So can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about those? There are three in particular. At the ground level, there's just local EMS. So basically, we transport a victim that's up on the hills down to the trailhead or wherever they may be, and uh, they get shipped into the ambulance and sent off to the hospital. But from the air, we have Dartmouth-Hitchcock Advanced Response Team, and they assist in searches, they extract patients, they can get them quickly to definitive medical care when needed. New Hampshire Army National Guard, they also provide search capability They can drop off rescuers to distant locations. They can extract rescuers and patients, and they also assist with searches. Yeah, and and Ty Gagne's book, The Last Traverse, he gives a really good overview of the behind the scenes activity with with the Army National Guard. I've not read that yet. Have you finished the book? I have, yeah. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting book. And it talks all about how you know the helicopter crews stay ready and then how they, they get into action. So it's, it's definitely worth reading. Mm-hmm. The last thing that we want to cover as far as organizations go is there are some additional resources that are um, involved in helping with training and support of search and rescue. So do you want to talk a little bit about those additional resources? Additional resources include Solo. They're out in Conway. They have courses throughout the year. You can get certified for your Wilderness First Aid or your Wilderness First Responder. There are other organizations that offer similar courses. So Solo, so if I get mauled by a beer out in the woods and I've got, actually, if me and you are hiking and you get mauled by a bear out in the woods, this Solo organization is the place that's going to train me how to get you to stop bleeding and, and at least give you enough time to survive before rescue gets there, right? Yeah. That, yep. That's certainly one component. <laughs> All right. Well, then we got we to gotta get into uh, a little bit of a training class there just in case, because I'm faster than you. Mm. So you're going to get mauled if we do run into a bear. <laughs> Yeah, they um, they cover all kinds of stuff. The splinting, splinting is fantastic, giving you just various yeah. ways to splint a broken limb with you know whatever you may have, whether it's sticks or you know hiking poles. Basic first aid. I mean, they cover a lot of good stuff. I found it really helpful when I um, studied last year. Got it. And do they require being on the um, the search and rescue teams? Are you required to go through their training? Uh, it depends on the team. We don't. Um, I believe that Lakes Region does, but we do not. So there's a big variation there. Got it. Now, Civil Air Patrol is just an auxiliary wing of the U.S. Air Force. 
and it's another uh, service that can help with searches and radio relay. The um, the relay can be help very helpful. You have communication up to the plane, and then back to command or wherever it may be headed to. The Harvard Mountaineering Club is basically tucked into the Huntington Ravine. They're often the first area to hear about incidents in Huntington Ravine, and they can provide shelter, and uh, they have the resources available for a first aid response. Yeah, there was a there was some incidents in January of this year where I think some hikers got in trouble. I think, as a matter of fact, I think it was a trail runner that um, was just going fast and light, similar to what we saw with the Franconia trail runners. And he got in trouble. And I believe that it was the caretaker at the Harvard Mountaineering Club that was able to locate this this trail runner and get him back into the hut to warm up a little bit. So that whole like little area of, of Huntington and, and Tuckerman is, is pretty well staffed in the winter to make sure that people, if they get in trouble, there's, there's resources to help. Have you ever been there in the winter? You know, I've never gone on that side of Mount Washington in the winter because uh, my impression has always been that it's uh, it gets crowded going to Tuckerman because there's a lot of skiing activity that goes on there and I haven't really gone up the the lion's head winter route um, not that I'm nervous about it but I just feel like the Ammanusik side is a little bit better in the winter you know for my own personal comfort I just prefer going up Ammanusik and then I'll usually go down the cog so I just haven't been over to that side in the winter, but many times in the summer. I mean, I've probably hiked Mount Washington over 20, 25 times. Mm. Now, last on the list is the uh, Mount Washington Observatory. It's a great resource for weather forecasts. They have the Higher Summits forecast, which generally plans out two or three days ahead uh, before your trip, which is really handy. You can see what's uh, shaping up. And uh, I personally love the Mesonet system, which gives you real-time data. Mm-hmm. They have these... I don't know, they look like little satellites just perched at various elevations throughout the presidentials, and they give you instantaneous information about wind speed, temperature, things like that. And that is also on that website, the Mount Washington Observatory website. Got it. Yeah. And they don't really, they're not a resource, just so that we're clear, like, do not knock on the observatory's door in the winter looking for help, because unless you're dying, I don't think that they're going to open the door for you. So, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I'm sure that they, they must support from a weather and forecasting perspective, like any search and rescue activity that, you know, any information that you guys need, they must be able to give you pretty, pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that, that's a lot. There's a lot going on in New Hampshire when it comes to um, you know government agencies, volunteer agencies, and other resources. So it's crazy how many orgs are involved. So, and it's really it seems like decentralized, uh, but it works well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Overall, the the apparatus itself is massive and um, effective. Yeah, it is interesting. Like part of my job, I, I'm. Organizational design is something that is of interest to me, um, just to my own personal work activity. But if I'm looking at the infrastructure here and the way that this is set up, you've got the three sort of top level organizations, and then you've got the three or four medivac air support organizations. You've got the four volunteer SAR teams plus the AMC. You've got four specialized volunteer teams along with four or five additional organizations that can help step in for additional support. So you're talking almost 20 separate agencies and organizations that are all ready to come find you. So Mm. if next time you stub your toe on the trail to Diana's bath, one of these 20 organizations is going to be involved in coming in and rescuing you, which is pretty cool. 
So I think, Stomp, the next thing we wanted to transition into is to talk a little bit about um, search and rescue statistics. And I think I'm most interested in the the number of missions related to hiking at this point. I tried to find um, 2020. I know it's out there somewhere, but um, I do have 2018 and 2019 numbers. I'll, I'll begin by saying that there are over two and a half million individual visits to the White Mountain National Forest. So the number of missions overall is a tiny fraction of the amount of people that visit the park. That being said, year to year, the number of missions is increasing and the number of volunteer hours is increasing, which again, just places the importance on the need and the availability of search and rescue teams. In 2018, there were 82 volunteer missions, totaling 4,619 hours. In 2019, that went up to about 5,222 hours, over 85 missions. Got it. So basically, like the, the, the number of missions was somewhat similar, but the complexity and the amount of time it took you guys to clear them was has gone up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a whole host of reasons, but year to year to year, the trend has been going up. Got it. And I can talk a little bit about the 2019 to 2020 numbers that I track. So I have oh, good. I have a uh, sort of a list or a database of missions that are publicly uh, listed on in the media. So anytime there's a, uh, a press release or a media news story about a search and rescue from 2019 or 2020, I have that tracked and categorized. So I can tell you that 2019, there was 110 hiking-related media news stories in New Hampshire for rescues. And in 2020, there was also 110 um, media news stories. So um, it's been flat from 2019 to 2020. Now, what I will say about that is that in Q1 into Q2 of 2020, we had a significant slowdown in events because of COVID restrictions and hiking. So you saw this like in, I think it was like March, April, and May, there was this big slowdown. And then the the rescue amounts that were publicized in the news sort of leveled off year over year compared to 2019. But we saw a big spike in Q4 of 2020 where search and rescue missions um, that were publicized over the news increased significantly. And then in Q1 of 2021, we've seen a, a big number compared to what we typically see. So I think in 2019 and 2020, Q1s, you saw like around five to 10 missions. And this year, I mean, we're going to cover a bunch of things that happened this week. And I think there's probably over 20 to 30 events that have happened in, in Q1 this year. So it's it's going up a bit, but it's but compared to 2019 and 2020, it was pretty, pretty flat. But like you said, the amount of people that are hiking in the whites compared to how many need a rescue is it's very small. Thankfully. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we'll talk more about statistics as we go along, Um, particularly there's some other ways that we can look at things by age. We can look at things by, um, you know, the the residents of different states and who gets in trouble the most. We can look at gender. We can look at categories of injuries. So we'll we'll cover some of that stuff in future episodes. But I do want to talk about from a search and rescue perspective, Stomp, 
there's four sort of categories or types of rescue calls that you see in the um, in the wilderness. So do you want to break down those those four types of calls and talk a little bit about them? The first is a no response call, and that's one thing I'll add to your recent comments. That's gone up incredibly over the last several months. We don't hear about these. We don't get called for these, but these are people that are, you know, perhaps just mildly off trail and they will call for help. They'll call 911. 911 will transfer the call to Fish and Game and you'll have a lieutenant at home or on duty just walking these people down the trail by phone. Got it. Yeah. Do you think I have this like my sense in the White Mountains is that the cell reception has gotten a lot better. Like there's areas that I could never get uh, get coverage that now I can get pretty good coverage on. So I wonder if because of the increase in better cell coverage in the whites, like you're just seeing people that are more likely to just call because they're getting nervous. Yeah, I'm not really sure. You know, your, your locations like Franconia Ridge, you do have pretty decent service when you're up on the ridge and that's a place where a lot of these no response calls will happen. I mean, there are the hot spots and thankfully these hot spots do tend to have some good service. The instinct to call for, for help is um, in a number of these news stories that have come out, people that have gotten in trouble have mentioned like, oh, they've downloaded all trails or some other mapping app on their phone. And some of these have like social aspects where people will say like, oh, do this hike or that hike. And they don't, people don't realize how difficult some of these hikes are. And they'll just look on all trails and say, this is the most popular hike to do in a particular area. And then they get in trouble or they get off trail. And, right. You know, I, mm-hmm. you know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about cell phone issues later on in this episode, but you know, I, I wonder... What, what's driving these no response calls? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> the second would be an assist or an escort. And that's where actually somebody has to get sent up trail to help somebody. Um, situations could be, you know, an individual that is overwhelmed by, you know, visibility, low visibility. A, a squall comes in and they're lost or they need help to get back on the trail. Low light, if, if it's dark and they have no headlamp. Officers generally will go up trail from fishing game and uh, volunteer teams don't generally go up on these. This is kept in-house with fishing game. Um, That happens a lot as well. So carry out is when somebody can't get off the trail back to the parking lot under their own power. You're talking about either a medical condition or an injury to a leg or an arm or dislocation, something of that nature. So that's typically when the volunteer teams will be called in to assist. Search is a pretty huge topic. Thankfully, we don't have too many of those. We did have one just recently on Mount Musalak. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out too well. There are different kinds of searches. Initially, when a, f- a search is being formed, we will have a hasty search, and that's where teams will cover primary trails, primary junctions, local roads, fields, you know, empty farm buildings, that type of thing, looking for the missing person. Grid searches usually take shape after a hasty search has failed. Yes, they can happen in conjunction, but after the hasty search is done, then we will walking a line of volunteers across a big block area. It could be as large as a football field. 
with GPS coordinates, uh, looking for any evidence that might give us an indication of where they are or where they went. Or got it. And then these searches are not always tied to, to missing hikers. Like you, you're called in for, you know, sometimes elderly may walk wander off. You might have juveniles that are missing, or um, even just local people that that go missing, and you're 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 doing those calls as well, right? Exactly. Yep. Got it. All right. So again, the four four types of calls: no response, assist, escort, carryouts, which is what most of us sort of think about when we think of search and rescue, and then the the ground searches. So in order for you to do all these different types of searches, there's a a lot of equipment that you rely on to uh, to make this happen. So do you want to talk a little bit about the equipment that is common in, in search and rescue organizations? When it comes to a carryout. We rely on what they call a Stokes litter. It's basically a metal or you know titanium gurney that um, you put the patient in. It has raised walls on the side so that the patient is protected, and that allows groups of six to pick the person up and carry them down the trail. In the winter, there's a version called the Sked, which we use in very particular um, circumstances. It has to be the right snow depth. Uh, the Stokes litter's pretty amazing. Without it, we'd be in big trouble. Uh, but with it, it's it's not a piece of cake because in the whites, you have trails that are about 24 inches wide. And the Stokes litter itself is pretty much 24 plus inches wide as well. So that would put the rescuers that are carrying the litter literally off the sides into the woods and uh, into the boulders. So it's a, it's a challenge carrying somebody down. And how do you keep people from... I, one thing I've always been curious about is like... Uh, how do you keep people from like kind of sliding forward or backwards, depending on if you're going uphill or, or, or downhill in the in the litter? Mm, yeah, we call that packaging. We use straps to fasten them in, and we will actually have a harness that, or a stirrup, stirrup's a better word, to secure the good foot so that an individual can place their weight into the good foot to prevent, you know, a sliding down as we're heading downhill and putting pressure on a, the involved leg. Got it. Oh, I see. I actually see that. So I'm looking at a picture of one right now. So that's, so there's a, like a, a strap that they use in their good foot. So if they're pointing downward, they can just put pressure against it, not slide. Yeah, exactly. It's critical. You have to t- kind of train them how to use that when, you, when you're going down a trail, I would assume, or at least kind of give them a rundown to say, like, hey, make sure that you're stiffen up on your leg when you're when you're going downhill. Yeah, well, again, you have no option. Your your good foot's in it, so it's almost a passive activity. You really have no say. I, I have to stress when you're in one of these litters, you lose total control. You're just fastened in, and you're relying upon the skill of the rescuers. It can be a really scary thing. Got it. You'll slide, but that harness will stop you from putting pressure on your bad leg. Got it. Now, have you ever gotten a ride in one of these things? Do they do that during training? Yeah, we do. We try to get as many people into the litters as possible. You need empathy because it will change the way you handle the litter. Again, it's terrifying, especially if you're going down a rocky, steep section of trail, which basically covers the whites. (laughs) Yeah, every part of the white. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you can add a wheel to the bottom of the litter. Um, This is used rarely only due to the fact that the trails in the whites are so rugged and bouldery. There are very few instances where this comes in handy. The last time I saw one was on the the ledges side of Welch Dickey back in 2017 or 18, I think. Okay. So, yeah, it depends. You know, perhaps like uh, another great example would be that stretch from the end of Zealand Road to the hut, you know, something flattish. Oh, yeah. And yep. 
you know, where you can really get some good speed and get going without all the boulders. Is there a weight limit to, to these litters? To, is it basically just limited if somebody's like 300, 400 pounds? Mm. Our heaviest person was probably 250. And that was just scratching the surface of how much that could carry because it's titanium. I mean, it's really, really rugged. Oh, yeah. So there, there won't be any structural failure. <laughs> that's for sure. Do you guys all, do you try to figure out like how heavy is this person we're going to carry out? Do you try to get that info ahead of time? Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of mixed about that. Um, sometimes we will mention that and sometimes we don't. You got you to carry them no matter what. So well, like yeah, no sense worrying about exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes, sometimes they'll send out that information that it's a... Uh, uh, technical term you know morbidly obese or whatever um and I, I, there may be the potential that somebody would look at that and say mm, i think i'll pass on that one yeah i gotta do some yard work today yeah exactly so um, i'm sort of torn about that but um if it's available uh you know depending on the circumstances we'll we'll add that information now the um, i just want to add about the sked um skeds are interesting they're great in the winter they're okay in the summer they were developed by the military to extract wounded soldiers quickly and rapidly, and they could be actually be hoisted by a Black Hawk, and an injured person could be taken away really quickly. But they're not structurally flawless either. I mean, I've been on body recovery where they've had you know holes in the bottom of them. So again, the whites are a brutal place. The rocks make certain choices really difficult to pull off. Yeah. So it, most of the time, you're just sort of presented with you need a volume of people so that you can carry somebody out, and over time, you just transition from, you know, however many people you have. It's you only have like what was it like six or eight people that can be on the on the carry at any one point in time. Up until about a year ago, it was multiples of six. So we would really strive to get about eighteen people plus to respond. Now. We have these extension arms that connect to the four corners, which can add an additional two or up to four extra individuals, which is a game changer. You know, you have to consider the trails that you're on. Sometimes they can be a hindrance because of the narrowness or, you know, the, the trees that may be in the way. But in general, it's, it's been a phenomenal help for us. Um, Fishing Game actually provided those to the team. And uh, what a great, great asset to have now. You know, if, if you're dealing with somebody that's in the 250, 300 range, that disperses the weight significantly and uh, limits the injury of risk for all of us. Got it. Got it. And then when you get to like really tricky parts, you know, I think about falling waters, there's a lot of like steep downhill and then there's river crossings. Um, what you do like handoffs for those, right? You've got you need at least 12 people to. So, yeah, that's that's another thing that we'll have to deal with quite frequently during a single mission, we have to get over certain obstacles, whether they be large boulders in the middle of the trail, steep switchbacks in the trail, uh, water crossings, things of that nature. We will line up all of the rescuers generally in front of us on either side and do what we call a handoff. And that's essentially staying in place and just passing the litter on to the next person to your right or left, whichever direction you headed, uh, until you cross that obstacle. So another question I have is, you know, we've talked about this before where you guys are carrying or, you, you know, the team members are carrying anywhere from 50 to 80 pounds worth of gear in order to uh, to do the search and rescues. When you know that you're going on a carryout, like you're not bringing your 50 pound backpack with you, right? Or is there like one person that's in charge of like <laughs> having everybody's gear 
and walks behind the, the, the litter. It's the individual rescuer's choice. They have to assess the situation and based upon their experience, they have to prepare and, um, you know, build their pack. It can be tricky. So you're still carrying, you're still carrying your backpack when you're carrying this, this person. Generally. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. You have some people that may be carrying the packs of the injured party. Oh yeah, that's true too. You're always carrying something for sure. Got it. So I would assume like I would probably, I mean, I'm not on search and rescue, but I would probably say like, okay, how far from the trailhead? What's the deal with the terrain? And I would try to go, if I knew that the victim was out there and all it was was a carryout, like I would try to go as light as possible so that I could focus on carrying the, the victim. When we have new individuals that apply, we put them through a qualifying hike and um, just general training. We really stress that you have to be self-sufficient for 24 hours, and that number 24 is key. There are cases that we've been involved with where, you know, the the mission would start at, say, 4 p.m. Falling Waters is a great example. We had one individual that was a mile below... Shining Rock, so that puts them up maybe three miles into the into the yeah about three yeah three and yeah. what was going to be a basic carryout maybe get us out by ten o'clock at night turned into a twenty four hour ordeal because it became a medical situation. So this was if I if I remember correctly it was springtime, so it was low thirties maybe even into the twenties, and we had to wait for a Blackhawk and. All of us were just, you know, very, very cold because some people were not prepared to all of a sudden stop and wait until sunrise for a Blackhawk. So unfortunately, you have to be ready for the unexpected. All right. So then you can. So that adds another component because if if you're going on a carryout and you still have maybe, you know, even if it's like you go a little bit lighter, you're still dealing with 30 pounds worth of gear and then you've got to carry a 200 pound person. So Mm -hmm. you're not in that good a shape. I don't understand how you can handle that. (laughs) (laughs) oh dude you have no idea i mean oh we have to talk about this whole hip thing at some point yeah yeah we will but i'm I'm kidding stomp is a a beast of a hiker so i'm just giving him a hard time so uh, the um and then we'll talk about like we won't get in i don't want to get into details about like what's in your pack so we're going to do a gear show um where i'll talk about sort of what i carry for day hikes and backpacking, and then you can talk about what search and rescue teams carry in more detail. But mm-hmm. I guess I want to transition into prevention and safety knowledge here. So there's a lot of information that the search and rescue teams and fishing game provide in um, in relation to staying safe out there. And a lot of this is just common sense uh, information, but there's a lot of people that get in trouble because they don't know what they don't know. So you want to talk a little bit about um, how to avoid being somebody that gets a ride in the carryouts rescues? Yeah, I think the most important thing and having done search and rescue for the last several years is just to be self-reliant. Have everything you need in your pack. Expect the unexpected. Have plan Bs if you do get in trouble. The hikesafe.com website is a fantastic place to start. You should have that equipment in your pack, compass, extra food, extra clothing, all that good stuff, because the unexpected can happen. Hikesafe card is great. It's 35 bucks for a family. That will cover you for the costs of a search and rescue, barring negligence, of course. Do some reading. Check out the White Mountain Guide uh, by the Appalachian Mountain Club. It gives you a detailed uh, rundown of what to expect at you know every mileage point, water sources, all kinds of great information there. Headlamps, 
I mean, geez, you need a headlamp. I, I don't understand this. Like the sun sets every single day and people don't bring a source of light when they go hiking in the mountains. I just, it drives me crazy. Yeah, that'll be a continuing theme of search and rescue on this show. Is <laughs> I, The way I always say it is I say, unexpectedly, the sun disappeared as it got later in the day. Yeah, unexpectedly. Oh my God. Yes. Uh, Definitely never rely on your cell phone. I know phones are not an alternative for light sources or maps or even communication because they fail. The the batteries run out quickly when it's cold. When you're using the the actual flashlight of a phone, it drains the batteries quickly. The light itself isn't that luminous. Yeah. When we talk about headlamps, I always say bring two headlamps. One is none and always have extra batteries. Um, the thing, the thing that happens to me with headlamps and the reason why I do carry two is that every once in a while, like I'll accidentally turn it on by mistake and it'll drain the battery inside my, my backpack without me knowing it. If you you put it down the wrong way or something, it sometimes it can trigger it to turn on. So having that extra headlamp and extra set of batteries can cover you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, traction and footwear. That's another very important area, especially the the shoulder seasons like uh, fall and spring. There's still a lot of ice out there. I'm looking out my back window here, and there's nothing for snow. I can't believe it. But And I'm in Thornton. This is physically the White Mountain National Forest. But you add 1,000 feet, and there's tons of ice and snow. So you need traction, whether it be crampons or micro spikes, that type of thing. And we usually will, say, carry micro spikes into May in most of the White Mountains. And well, it usually does get cleared by, by the middle of May, but like in the presidentials, it's still, it can get you know, snow and ice can hold on well into June. Oh, absolutely. Another important thing you can do is just leave a trip plan with um, a family member or a friend so that if you do run into trouble and don't arrive back when you're anticipated to, that somebody will have basic information as to where you were going, what trails you were going on, if you were going to a campsite, that type of thing. Vehicle make and model, because there are times when people go missing and the very first thing within the hasty component is to go find the car. Like, hey, is the car at the trailhead? Uh, Colors of tents. Oh, don't tell me that. I have a, I have a brown tent. I'm invisible. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble if I need to get rescued in my tent. But, um, but I think the, the, the areas, like you said, hike safe website is obviously a good place to start. The front section of the white mountain guide has the hiker responsibility code, as well as a breakdown of the 10 essentials. Uh, and then as much as the the Facebook and social media groups can be a swamp of negativity, um, you can dig through those and actually get a lot of good information. You know, every once in a while, somebody is not an asshole and they will give you good information. So if you have questions about like particularly like clothing, you know, you'll see like I took one of my friends hiking and, you know, I was like, I want to get you into hiking. And I was so excited to bring him up. And like I go to pick him up and he's wearing like jeans and like a flannel shirt. And I was like, oh, no. I'm like, you can't wear cotton, you're going to die. <laughs> so just just common sense things like, you know, what to wear. You can get a lot of information on social media. Um, just be warned that it can definitely be a swamp of, of negativity sometimes. All right, well, Stomp, we talked about prevention. Um, if for some reason I do find myself in a situation where I do need to call for a search and rescue, what are some things that I can do to make sure that I don't die? Well, before you expect someone to look for you, Best thing you can do, backtrack to your last known location, look around for trailblazes, 
those rock cairns that mark the trail, especially above tree line. Mm-hmm. Any signs that may be up on trees. If you have a map, fantastic. A compass can be handy as well. Even better, GPS or your phone if you have to. If you see anybody, ask them for help. Don't be shy. Downhill leads to trails and roads in New Hampshire. I think the maximum distance you would have to travel is probably 15 miles before you actually came upon a road in the whites. It's a a funny statistic. One of the team members actually did research about this and 15 is the number. But in general, if you head down, you're going to get to either a logging road or a primary road. So after you expect someone to look for you, the best thing you could do is stay in one spot on an air structure, trail, or a source of water. Try to keep yourself warm and dry. Yeah, stay off the ground. When you go directly on the ground, um, you'll, you know, the, the cold will transition into your body much more qu- quickly than it will if you have like a pad that, that has some cushion between you and the ground. Mm-hmm. Absolutely make noise. When people are searching for you, if they hear you, that's absolutely key. Three flashes, uh, whistle blasts, Water is not a priority unless it's very hot, and food's not a priority unless it's very cold. That deals with body temperature and heat loss. And what if you're injured? Self-rescue is probably the best bet if you're able to move. Even if you have contacted fishing game for a rescue, it's best if you're on trail to keep on moving because it's going to take a long time for us to get together and prepare and arrive to your location. So the further along you are, if able... Uh, the better off everybody is. Yeah, I have a like a, and I I feel like I've read this somewhere, but I've definitely seen people talking about these situations, especially with like lower leg injuries. And I have this theory, maybe I'm wrong and I'm not qualified to give anybody professional advice, but my view is like, if you get a lower leg injury, um, and I've had a few of these over over the years. Like the best thing to do, I think, is to keep that person moving because once they stop for a long period of time and the adrenaline wears off, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be a lot tougher for them to to get moving again. Right. Even though they're going to feel pain, like I feel like if they got that adrenaline flowing and they've got sort of a mission in mind to like let's get to a certain point, you're probably better off doing that than you are stopping and trying to assess the situation for a long, long time. I mean, if it's a compound fracture or something crazy. And obviously that's different. But if it's a sprain, mm. keep them moving. That's what I say. Just a side note on that. When we come to, up to a person that's not injured, but just, you know, jelly legs, just gassed out on the trail, we will try to make an attempt to get them up and walk. Because if they can walk with assistance, that's a lot better than having to carry them down for everybody, just for safety of the rescuers and the uh, patient themselves. Little side point there. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so anything else about injuries? If you call 911, the dispatch will receive your latitude and longitude or your GPS location. And those coordinates will be generally accurate, not 100%, but that will tell Fishing Game where you are, roughly. Some phones, the iPhone I know has a feature where it will tell you your your actual location in latitude and longitude. I don't have an iPhone. I'm thinking Android doesn't have this feature built in. But point is, know where you are and know how to get your GPS location. Plenty of apps have it built in as well. Yeah, and it could be the difference between the iPhone and the Androids is I know the iPhone has a built-in satellite chip because it works when you download maps, you can get your satellite position, uh, even in no cell phone connectivity situations. But I don't know if that's true with Android. I, I have an iPhone, so... 
So there's a couple of other pieces of information in here about like, how, you know, if you did want to be a volunteer on one of these rescue teams, um, what, you know, what is the process for that? And then there's, there's a little bit in here as well about sort of the funding and, and supporting of, of search and rescue. So I guess maybe if we want to wrap the show up with those two topics, do you want to cover those? Yeah, I would suggest, you know, based upon your region, look into the teams that are in your neighborhood. Um, don't apply to PEMI if you're down in the Lakes region and vice versa. So keep it local because they need help where you are and you don't want to be sitting in your car driving for an hour or two to get to a, a mission that's going to be done in an hour. It's just a waste of time. Look into the local teams that we talked about earlier. Um, we survive on donations by organizations and people, some you know people that we rescue will actually send in donations to us, which is really sweet. You can donate to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council. They provide monies to the teams for uh, gear. And then the Hike Safe card, obviously, is another uh, area of, of funding for them. So you should always purchase a Hike Safe card. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's becoming more and more popular. I think they made over 100 plus thousand this past year in sales. It's very difficult for fishing game to <laughs> meet the costs of the ever-growing demand for rescue. Got it. So um, this is all very great. You know, it's great information. And though we tried to keep this show a little bit more serious than we normally do just because we wanted to give the listeners as much of an overview and understanding about how search and rescue is set up in the state. And, you know, it's it's pretty complicated. You know, as I do some work around organizational design and, and process improvements in my, my regular work life. And it's pretty impressive how they have this set up. It's, you know, it's a pretty decentralized infrastructure, but it all seems to work pretty well. And at the end of the day, the mission is to, to make sure that people stay safe and to help them out when they get in trouble. And it, it, it definitely seems to work. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. It's getting better all the time, too. Yeah, yeah. I think um, as these organizations um, continue to expand, you know, like the Lakes region, I think that's a big area that didn't have any coverage a couple of years ago. So I would assume that, you know, they've been a, a big win for search and rescue over the last couple of years. So so this is all good stuff. I learned a lot. Now I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert, but I feel like I know a lot more than I did before. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I think um, with that, we're going to wrap it up. Um, so thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to learn more about the topics that we discussed today, um, we're going to put some information up on the show notes on our Sounds Like a Search and Rescue call show pages, which can be found on Facebook and Amazon. So until next time, I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words that describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Only one hill! Here's Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. 
What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? Seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.